Welcome to this week's episode of Seen and Heard, Industry Updates for the Modern Dairy Family. I'm Darby Toth, a Technical Field Services Representative with Western United Dairies. And I'm Melissa Lima, the North Coast and Organic Field Services Representative with Western United Dairies. Welcome back, everyone. Yeah, it's, it's good to be back this week. Um, you had a pretty fun co-host last week. Yeah, Annie's a, Annie's a good co-host. And actually, she was really awesome this week. She did a great interview with Stan Irwin and Paul Zeminski from DMI for us. So I'm glad Annie is um, participating in the podcast a little more. We love having her. Thanks. Big shout out to Annie. I agree. Well, in the spirit of our uh, brief weekly weather update, are you still getting some heavy fog up your way? <laughs> well, it was definitely drippy and wet this morning, but I noticed it's clearing off now and we're headed into, knock on wood, what's supposed to be a really good weekend. So we shall see. I heard you guys are headed into a bit of a heat wave again, Darby. Yeah, I think we're predicted to about at about 107 on Sunday. So it's going to be a little warm down in the South Valley this weekend. Yeah. Hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. <laughs> exactly. Goodness. Well, it's a good thing. Like, you know, 4th of July seemed pretty nice down there. Everybody got to get out and enjoy the cooler weather a little bit. So hopefully, uh, hopefully we got all shook our sillies out a little bit last weekend. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It was pretty nice down this way to celebrate the 4th. Good deal. Yeah. So um, we have a pretty packed episode. We, as I mentioned, had a, a great interview with Stan Irwin and Paul Zeminski from DMI that Annie conducted, just talking about how checkoff dollars are being spent, which I think is a really good reminder for producers during these times, um, you know, kind of where they're, where they're getting the bang for their buck as far as marketing goes. And then, of course, Annie joined us for a market update. And I had a quick Q&A with Anya about um, some OSHA visits that maybe put a little bit of a damper on some folks 4th of July weekend. And then we just had a chance to chat with Devin Giletti, our board president, about some of the interesting stuff that happened this week and, and allowing our board to set the record straight about some things going on in the industry. Yeah, it was great to have Devin on. Well, we better start rolling into this week's episode because it's so packed. So let's head over to Annie's market update. Thanks, Melissa and Darby. Um, another good weeks. There were fireworks all over the sky last weekend, and there were fireworks in dairy markets this week. So some commodities managed to continue to go up this week. Um, in particular, the block cheese, which has really been uh, the star lately. Uh, USDA prices continue to lead the improvement uh, with six cents uh, per pound. Now the block cheese price that goes into your pricing formula stands at $2.59 per pound. And the best part is there's still room to grow because the CME blocks are still growing. Um, they skyrocketed to $2.83 per pound, setting a new record again this week. Um, price was really unexpected considering you know where we were just a month and a half ago. USDA barrels were a bit slower with a gain of almost two cents, but since they're standing at $2.40 a pound, there's really not much to complain here. This is really closer in line with where the CME prices are. Uh, they've been hovering around that $2.40 a pound also. Uh, export data came out uh, this week and cheese exports in May performed particularly well. Not only was export volume up 7% from a year ago, the monthly volume was the highest since March, 2019. This might get a little bit trickier as we get into summer and our export competitiveness, you know, may take a little bit of a hit because our prices are so high. And if you look outside our borders, the latest global dairy trade auction, um, the, the average cheddar price was $1.71 per pound. 
Um, I mentioned this last week, but I think it's still worth mentioning it again to avoid bad surprises on your next milk statement. Those recent increases in cheese prices, they may not entirely translate um, to a direct increase on your milk statement. So overall, it will elevate the average price that's paid to producers in California in June, that's for sure. But there's still going to be a lot of farmers that are going to receive a price below that statewide average, while others are going to get a higher price. And so if you're paid on the cheese price, you're going to be on the higher end. If you're um, shipping to another processor where you typically receive a pool price, then your price will probably be below that um, statewide average, uh, the all-mill price when that number gets published. Um, this should uh, continue as we get, you know, this gap should continue in July, but it should shrink a little bit as the higher cost one price, um, you know, as the cost one price goes up in July, um, it should help those who are, uh, you know, part of the pool. If you look at the non-federal milk price, it continued to go up also, uh, gained almost two cents at 97 cents a pound now on USDA prices. And if you look at the CME, we're about $1.03. So USDA prices have a little bit of a room to grow. Um, and especially if we look outside our borders, things are doing a little better for powder. Uh, the latest global dairy trade auction is Kilmilk powder, price average $1.22 per pound. Um, and even, you know, looking at latest USDA data, Powder exports were not only up 24% year over year, they set a new record in May. And so there's a lot of powder that is moving outside our border, which is really good. Looking at butter prices, there was a little bit of a setback. They lost 2.78 cents this week to um, just about $1.80 per pound. And, you know, CME butter prices slipped a little bit and they're about a, a dime lower. Um, and if we look at dry white, also a little bit of a loss there, um, you know, typically moves very slowly, although it dropped 2.72 cents this week. So it's a a uh, pretty big jump for this commodity who typically doesn't move very fast. So now it stands uh, just shy of 34 cents per pound. Um, I talked about exports earlier. Overall, May was really good uh, month. Um, exports, um, according to the U.S. Dairy Export Council, uh, they reported that exports represented about 14.7% um, of U.S. production a year ago. This year, we're at 17.4% of total U.S. production. And so a big uh, jump for May and in particular for powder. I mentioned that, you know, those uh, we set a new record. It's 85% of U.S. powder that was exported in May. So some quite impressive movement there in uh, powder markets. So this concludes the market update for this week. Thanks so much, Annie, for that market update. And another big shout out to Annie for our next segment, which is an interview with Paul Zeminski and Stan Irwin from DMI. Okay, so uh, this week we are excited to uh, host on our podcast, Seen and Heard, uh, two uh, gentlemen from uh, DMI, Dairy Management Inc. And so we have Stan Irwin uh, with us today and Paul Zeminski. I said that right, correct? Last name? Definitely. All right, perfect. And so um, Stan works with uh, producer relations. So maybe Stan, I'll start with you. If you want to give us a little brief uh, background on what you do for DMI. Yeah, thank you, Annie. And uh, you know, I work basically. I'm the eyes, ears, and voice of the farmers who fund us. And I spend time with you and your board, farmers throughout the valley, uh, always willing to listen and share their questions, their insights. It's their investment. Uh, we want to make sure we're communicating. So. I can't thank you uh, and Anya and your board enough for this opportunity to just update Western United members on their checkoffs work throughout COVID-19. It's been a unique time to say the least. I've invited Paul Zeminski, who is Executive Vice President of our Global Partnerships to join us and share the checkoffs perspectives and experiences working 
uh, through a disrupted supply chain on farmers' benefit. Paul was a leader on a couple of our emergency action teams. Um, he exemplifies one of the things I'm really proud of at this time, and that's just how rapidly we pivoted from our existing plan to responding to COVID-19 on behalf of farmers. So Paul, in fact, led one of our emergency action teams that, you know, focused on retail. You know, a lot of folks were seeing the out-of-stock signage, and Paul will talk about that focused on schools, you know, what can we do and what could we do to help make sure we were getting milk to families and through schools and a disrupted school chain. And then the hunger chain, you know, whether that be through the food banks, but we'll talk a little bit about that. But again, Paul also exemplifies his regular job is again, working with all of our partners, uh, the food service. So he's a a perfect person to answer your other questions that you had framed to us, and I know your members have on their mind, and that is, okay, what's occurred through COVID-19? What is occurring in restaurants and through food service? Is there a recovery? What is that looking like? And so I think, again, based on the board meeting where we just had the board members that direct the checkoff on behalf of all farmers, that was just completed yesterday, and Paul provided a lot of those updates. I want to stress that again, we also work very, very closely with our 16 state and regional promotion organizations in California, that would be CMAB. So Paul, with that, I'm going to hand it off to you or see if Annie has any questions or any additional clarifications you'd like to make. No, that's perfect. I think the, the question of, you know, how important dairy is to the restaurant industry has really come to light in the last few months. And DMI works a lot with those partners. And so really, um, interested to hear what DMI uh, did in the, the face of the, the crisis that we faced. So I'll hand it off to you, Paul. Yeah, what I'll do is I'll start with uh, some of the emergency teams that stand referenced first. You, you, you know, uh, what we did is we looked at where the consumers were going to go and key focus areas uh, that were going to be impacted from COVID. And, you know, first and foremost is schools, right, where you have about uh, 30 plus million kids or students who are part of the, the school lunch or reduced lunch and breakfast programs. And, and we wanted to make sure that they were getting consistent access to uh, milk and dairy and nutrition during the COVID times as, as that was being disrupted. You know, so we form emergency action teams to say, how do we make sure uh, to inform, you know, we can't lobby, but we can inform and educate different um, bodies of government what was facing uh, the school situation. So we were able to you know, prove to them the need to change the, the size and, and, and get size waivers, you know, from just providing, the, you know, the eight ounce cartons to gallons so the, kid, the, the school districts could distribute gallons so, so they could just uh, send it home with kids. Because, what you know, where you had uh, within four weeks, a majority of the U.S. kids were out of school and, and at home. And, you know, a lot of those kids rely on schools for their food. And so they, what the school districts did is a lot of them pivoted from, you know, daily feedings to weekly feedings. And, if we weren't able to secure those governmental waivers, you know, milk would have been out of the equation. So there's a lot of waivers on that. Also, when the brush hit, we educated uh, the, the same folks the need to not just uh, change size, but to also focus on fat levels. So we all, and, and you know, the, the USDA stepped back and said, you know, well, the, those decisions on fat levels are, are local, but we 
we'll let the local agencies uh, approve waivers to go to, to different fat levels in the interim too. So there's a lot of work, as Stan talked about, between national DMI and our state and regions to, to inform bodies of government to get those waivers through so we could keep milk flowing through the school system. Number two, then we looked at the hunger system. You know, normally you have, uh, you know, last year there was about 37 million people who went through the hunger system, uh, you know, and, and a lot of that majority goes through Feeding America, which is about, you know, 80 to 90% of that. And uh, we knew there was going to be, you know, some projected increase from 15 to 20 million people. And so we wanted to make sure that dairy was front and center and available there. You know, no, you know, go back two years ago, there was about 250 million pounds of dairy that went through the food, the hunger network. Last year, it was in the 300 million range. You know, this year we, we looked at and the need and, you know, we're working with Feeding America, there's room for over a billion pounds of, uh, you know, milk and dairy to go through that hunger system. And so we, we rapidly worked with every, everything from dairy providers who had excess milk to pair them with places like a Kroger, provide that excess milk to put it in packaging and get it to the feed, feeding systems. You know, that was done across the U.S. through a, a variety of retailers or working directly with processors to link them with uh, local places and local food banks that can handle that. So that was that first team there of really matching hunger. And we also then talked a little bit about shifting to food service. We also brought in the food service industry to also be a player in that hunger and school channels. And that examples of that were our partner Domino's where they donated pizzas to, um, I think today they've donated about uh, um, 20, I think it's like somewhere around 20 million slices of, of pizza have been donated across the U.S. to the hunger system and school system um, by Domino's as an example of that to help meet the needs. And then, uh, you know, shifting to sales. You know, we knew that retail was going to get an influx of sales. We also knew you know, based upon um, the food service system was going to shut down and, and different parts of the food service system was going to get harder than others. You know, the, the, as you look at the restaurant industry, you kind of define it, you've got fine dining or limited service. And those places are everything from like an olive garden to a high end local restaurant. Those, they, they were going to get hit the hardest. They're not set up for delivery or carry out as easily as other places. They don't have drive through. Then you start to look at what we call fast casual. Those are emerging concepts where you have like a mod pizza, you have like a five guys burger front. They were going to get hit harder because again, more walk up, you know, they've got a little more modern technology so they can offer um, carry out, but they're not set up for drive through. And then you have the, the quick serve restaurant industry, which is still the majority of the sales for the industry. They're set up for drive through. You know, you look at places like McDonald's, Roughly 65, 70% of their sales go through the drive-through system. A Taco Bell is consistent. Um, you know, then you pivot to the, to the quick serve pizza chains. You know, everybody from Domino's, Pizza Hut, Little Caesars, Papa John's, they've got existing delivery models. And we felt that, you know, the consumer, we're going to be coming out of the home. There's an opportunity to preserve a significant portion of the cheese that goes through the industry by focusing on uh, you know, a lot of pizza activation. So I'll talk about individual activations in those places, but, um, and how, how, how we thought we could try to help moderate uh, the impact of the food service side. And so I'll start with um, you know, that, the pizza channel. 
And, uh, you, know, you know, the numbers we have is, a, is roughly about 25% of cheese in the U.S. goes through pizza, you know, d domestically. And so we said, let's make sure pizza's ready and prepared to handle the COVID situation. And, and uh, so working with the partners, some of the, the work we've done is we, we said, how do we draw drive awareness of pizza and, and the safetyness of pizza? So you, you instantly, you, you saw like Domino's, um, Pizza Hut, they talk about contactless delivery. And, and the good news is we had been working with things with Domino's to pilot new different technologies that were advantageous to dairy sales because if, if you think about Domino's, they've got delivery mechanisms, but their carryout mechanisms had a lot of uh, consumer handling interactions. And so we actually tested some stuff pre-COVID back in November that, that was called contactless um, you know, delivery and carry, and carry out. And uh, so when, when COVID hit, Domino's was ready. And uh, that was timely. And so, so, that, so that was just, you know, talk about timely. And, and they actually have the advertising going on right now. We can send you the, you know, the link to share with the, the uh, we'll call it contactless carry out. So literally you, you, you pull into a Domino's today if you want to carry out and the, the technology alerts Domino's that you're present and they just put it in your back seat or in your trunk. You don't even have to do anything. You don't have to get out of your car now. And, and why that's big for dairy is carry out competes much more in, in these, I'll call it urban, suburban environments with low dairy products, you know, Asian food, chicken, you know, a lot of the different ethnic foods. And so having Domino's ready in, in that situation enabled them to actually grow their sales. And I, um, when you look at the results for Domino's uh, during the, the COVID period, you know, Q2, they, I think uh, April, May, their sales were up uh, about 10%. You know, I think, uh, you know, they haven't released uh, June, but I think they'll probably be a, a closer to 20% sales growth for Domino's because they were ready to handle that. You know, they've hired over um 20,000 people nationally as well to make sure that they could handle the flush. And then for Pizza Hut, we looked at them and we were like, how do we create excitement? You know, you had this whole generation of kids <clears throat> who were graduating from school and they weren't going to be able to celebrate their prom. They weren't going to be able to celebrate the graduation. So in that partnership, we said, how do we use pizza to, to solve that need? And so we, we partnered with Jimmy Fallon and, and engaged uh, Pizza Hut and uh, basically awarded, you know, a, a half a million free pizzas to uh, graduating seniors of high school that they, that they could come in and get a free pizza on, be, on behalf of uh, PMI and farmers and, to, uh, and, and Pizza Hut to, sh to share and kind of celebrate with their friends and, under social distancing. And, and that was a huge success. It was all over the Jimmy Fallon show, a lot of... Uh, Pick up. I mean, within three days, the half, the five hundred thousand pizzas were uh, uh, gone. And, and the key thing that's important there is the consumers that had to get the five hundred thousand pizzas. They had to go register on the Pizza Hut app for that. And what Pizza Hut has told us that uh, three key things: half of those consumers who signed up for the free pizzas weren't existing users of Pizza Hut. Number two, the results the three weeks after Pizza Hut had their biggest sales weeks in eight plus years wow and they just you know they've just announced they're having also high single digits to double digit sales you know they'll probably release their announced earning or sales and earnings but you know from a you know 
Domino's has been humming the last decade. You know, they've been a longer term partner. We started partnering with Pizza Hut to stabilize their business so we can continue that growth. And this is a, a way to help stabilize that business. And so when you look yesterday, finally, we didn't have a partner in Papa John's. We actually reached out to Papa John's because we wanted to continue to drive dairy sales for the farmer and did a, I'll call it a pop-up partnership with Papa John's where where they're, they were on uh, their large pizza, they were gonna give away extra cheese from uh, May 1st all the way through uh, the end of uh, July. And you know they just announced yesterday that they had a 24% sales growth in June. So you know I, I think a lot of that was tied to you know some of the announcements and you know they've launched new products, but they also you know anytime you could upgrade um, extra cheese for free, it moves a lot of volume. And, and, I, and again, those three examples are just ways we jumped in with uh, the pizza guys to drive sales for the category. Now, and then pivoting to, we have two other partners on the food service front, McDonald's and Taco Bell. And it's kind of a tale of two uh, cities. You know, uh, Taco Bell had a really strong Q1. You know, they were up 4%. They, they hit uh, Q2 and they're, they're, they lost dramatically all their, their dine-in sales. You know, they also, you know, their breakfast business went away. And then with, with Taco Bell, what we worked with them on a, a couple of things is how do we get consumers to feel comfortable and engaged with Taco Bell? And so we work with them. They, they launched a uh, free Taco Tuesday, Doritos Los Tacos, and, and, you know, promoted that to start to get traffic back. And then we worked with them to create Taco Bell meal kits that they were launched at Cinco de Mayo. And why that was big was that's over 11 ounces of cheese in that Taco Bell meal kit. Wow. You know, and, and a normal taco is about 0. 0.25 or 0. 0.25 ounces. <laughs> it's a big so, upgrade. Right. And so it's a huge upgrade. And also we work with them to create some delivery type of products. And then we had some existing innovation that was postponed and they, they, they got enough of the, the consumers back that they relaunched those innovation platforms and, and, uh, Oh, the first one was a pineapple whip. And if, if you know, uh, that pineapple whip was a breakthrough in dairy where Taco Bell's never had a dairy beverage um, until now. And that, that pineapple whip has been highly successful for them. And they, they created a, a lot of cool, uh, you know, um, off the menu type of uh, recipes that you could go in and ask for. And so it generated a lot of buzz. And, you know, what we, what we try to do with our partners is, is to have a catalytic effect and have others follow. And so this is the first time you get in that, I'll call it that freeze arena, you know, where, where they've got um, a adding dairy at these uh, big quick service, quick service arena outside of uh, things like your normal shakes or Sundays. And so that, that's what was big about it is bringing dairy into some of those, those things. And then hey, today, hey, or actually hey, this Paul, launching hey, Paul, Yeah. You had mentioned, I think it's a really cool story. You had mentioned that, Taco Bell had not been able to have a dairy product. I think it's the, the why that is so interesting. Yeah, well, uh, the key thing about the dairy beverages at Taco Bell was that they, they have limited space. So they would have loved to have like a, a dairy creamer type of product that they could add to different beverages, but they don't have the refrigeration space. And so we actually worked with the supplier industry for four years, the dairy research centers for four years to create a dairy creamer, when you think about all those non-dairy creamers like Cremette that taste horrible, oh, yeah. right, that sit on shelf, this is the first shelf-stable dairy creamer that, that is being launched into the food service arena. So think about the potential that this supplier has now to take this technology that we co-developed 
and go to all of food service to launch dairy-based, you know, cool, unique beverages, and also go to, to compete direct, directly at retail with a shelf-stable dairy creamer. So that, that, that's our vision in the next three to five years is, is take that technology that way and um, go right after those fake creamers. And then number two, the final thing on Taco Bell is um, our on-site, we have two on-site food scientists and they just uh, came up with a way to deliver grilled cheese experience on the outside of the burrito. And that's launching this week. So look for a lot of cool creative there. But again, why that's big is we, we've helped pivot Taco Bell from, they used to think of dairy as a garnish, kind of like lettuce and tomatoes. Dairy's been the hero of all their product innovation over the last five years since we started the partnership. And what we do is we do the concept research and then we do the science behind how they commercialize it. So we've done everything from a quesalupa, which is stuffing cheese into a shell, to now putting cheese on the outside of a burrito <laughs> that, that works within their system. So yeah, those are some Yeah, everybody loves things. some cheese. <laughs> and then finally, McDonald's. <clears throat> you know, from a McDonald's perspective, when COVID hit, you know, our, our first and foremost thing is we wanted to protect dairy. McDonald's immediately announced they're going to a, a much smaller menu. And so our job was we wanted to prove to them, hey, dairy's on 90% of your McCafe menu. Dairy is an 80% of your you know, normal everyday breakfast and, and lunch thing. We were able to preserve over 90 plus percent of the dairy assortment. And so when their Q, an example of that is their Q1 sales came in down 13%. Dairy was only down about 4.5% in Q1 at McDonald's. And then vice versa, as their sales are starting to go up, that the items that were really restricted off our menu, we were having that relationship, we were to get able to activate the dairy items faster. And that's things like ice cream cones, sundaes. Um, and really the only thing that's not active now at McDonald's was Go-Gurt, and that, you know, that'll be coming sooner. So like a lot of other businesses were hit hard with cutting back of that, we preserve it. And then the, the other piece with McDonald's is they, they didn't do a lot of marketing during the COVID period because as, as consumers retrenched at home, the one thing they didn't cut back is they still trust McDonald's for value, for kids experience and quick drive through. And so they, they, they spent less on the marketing front. They're taking that marketing they held back and over the next three months, they're going to invest aggressively in marketing. And, and the, the thing is we've been working with that a lot of that marketing is going to be heavy dairy items like McCafe, like I said, which is 90% dairy. When you think about over the last two years, we've helped them launch the macchiato, the frappe lines, all those are dairy intensive things. And that, that's where, again, we have on-site scientists that work with all the dairy suppliers, the equipment suppliers. And right now, McDonald's doesn't, can't even do alternative beverages through that system because they've invested over $200 million in assets that run one dairy product. So that's that's where having our people front and center have been really focused there. Paul, there was uh, one area of the emergency action teams that we didn't cover that I was pretty amazed at your role and the role of the states and regions. And that was, and I know it happened a lot in the Valley and it was in California, and that was the out of stock situation. And can you talk about the role that you played with the national and then how some of these states and regions, because I know CMAB came in and they worked more locally. Yeah, that's been a great, that, that was the fourth team we formed was a retail team. And immediately out of the retail team, the goal was leveraging the feet on the street we had across the universe to inform us where they were seeing out of stocks. You know, we've, we've, we've got a lot of senior relationships at the big grocery centers and grocery chains like Walmart, Targets, uh, Kroger's across the, the universe. 
And so what we did is we just kept telling people to inform us, take pictures where the store is. And we were immediately informing um, to, to limit the out of stocks. And number two, we, we also used those communications to say, look, they're outside of the first two weeks when you had massive disruptions across the food universe, the dairy producers, when it comes to milk, were ready and, and to supply product. And really, the, the out-of-stocks were not driven at all by dairy. It was really driven by the producers putting COVID situations in. They, they were restricting shipments. You know, normally, the dairy truck's there from 3 to 6 in the morning dropping milk off, right? Well, under COVID, they put a 24-hour drop-off schedule. So they may have told the milk guy, you, you can come today at 1 o'clock, tomorrow at 3. And that resulted in out-of-stocks. And so we kept the pressure on at the national level through, like, the CMAB levels to inform them like dairy's ready, give almost give us a, a, a waiver to get around your other suppliers because milk's one of the top three items that sells through the store. You know, and it, when milk's in the basket, you know, we were looking at the COVID baskets, almost $90 when milk's in it. And so you guys are losing, you're, if you don't have milk, they're walking to another store. So we used a lot of storytelling to open the eyes of the retailers that milk's available open your warehouse system, open your store distribution system, let the, the, the teams in there, and then, you know, turn off your, then finally, to Stan's point, turn off the restrictions. We can, we can ensure we can deliver more than two um, packages of milk per, per person. So there's a lot of mass coordination on that re, real retail team to inform the retailer uh, of availability and, and unlock that availability and actually celebrate the availability of, uh, uh, dairy on that. And so that's kind of the, the final phase was you saw a lot of local uh, state and regions talk about hey, milk and you grab your dairy and support your dairies locally. And we, we worked with them to get that um, messaging up local as well. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that's really good. It sounds like that communication went through uh, really well. You mentioned something earlier about uh, Taco Bell and I'm assuming McDonald's the same where uh, breakfast sales uh, kind of went away. I'm assuming is because people are not commuting and stopping by the drive-thru to pick up their, you know, cheese sandwich, uh, egg sandwich, or um, what, what have you. Do they have plans to bring those back? Do you know, or have you been working with them to try to resurrect that market, or is that something that is just a focus yeah. now that needs to be away? Great question. McDonald's, it, it, they're back, and that's that was the second piece of the in, uh, investment and in marketing that they're going to be doing uh, in the back half of this year, you know, they announced publicly, they're going to put $200 million into marketing to make sure consumers are getting back into that breakfast routine as the work in the market, the States open up. Taco Bell, on the other hand, you know, it's a smaller portion of their sales and, and given COVID and what, what they're seeing is that they are probably going to suspend breakfast until 2021 uh, just because of, the COVID and, and, and it's not as a critical to, the, to their business. Again, it's, I, I can't commit exactly the percent, but it's less, well, less than 10% of their sales. And so it's not going to hurt where McDonald's, they just announced yesterday, you know, their sales were down and half of their sales decline were, were, were driven by breakfast consumers. And that's where flip it to retail. So retail, that's where we're seeing the majority of milk's growth come from is the breakfast occasion. We are actually just looking at some graphs today. If you were to graph the cereal growth and the fluid milk growth during the period of COVID by week, they're linear, they're on top of each other. And so what we're seeing is the consumers who were eating on the run, you know, you know grabbing an egg McMuffin at McDonald's or, or you know, 
eating a granola bar in their car, those are the ones that are having cereal at home or, or you know, like a protein bowl at home right now. And so that you can almost follow the milk flow that normally would have been done at, at a restaurant now being consumed at home. That's good. At least there's still, some dairy still being consumed. So overall, that's not a, a total loss for... And, for and that's the, a lot of what our efforts are, the retail teams pivoted to now. You know, we're working with Milk Pep on the processing side to keep those consumers engaged in milk in the category. You know, so you'll start to see, uh, you know, there's a lot of digital marketing taking place now. We were just reviewing creative today for places like Kroger. As consumers go back to work and back to school, you know, there's some communications like make it with milk, you know, it's, whether it's your cereal or, your, your, or drink it with milk, you know, if, if you're having a Jimmy Dean's bowl. And so we want to make sure those consumers, as these behaviors change between work and home and what they're consuming, that milk is part of that equation, whether it's at work or on the, at home and those different, and that's why it's important to have those partners at food service and, and those partners at retail and, and how you market to them may be different, but you know, having different relationships with whether it's CM, what CMAB is doing, whether Milk Pep is doing, or, or the, even the milk processors uh, are doing. So that, that's what our, our goal is trying to do is marry those groups. Well, very good. Um, I, I know I, I look at the clock now. I think you've got a uh, you've got to run here soon. But um, I really wanted to thank you for taking the time for you know talking with us, um, highlighting what DMI has been doing. Um, I think it's really important because especially in times of crisis like that, where we we saw the first few months about dairy demand just dropping, it's good to know that you guys are working on maintaining those partnerships and not only maintaining but like you know putting more cheese on on consumers' plates. And so really appreciate the time today. Um, do you have anything else you want to add before we wrap this up? No, I, again, we love working with and for the farmers. And so whatever we can do to drive, you know, uh, I came into DMI, uh, I, I was an old craft marketing guy in cheese and pizza. And the, the great thing about what we do at DMI is drive sales. You know, a lot of these companies focus on driving cost out and the bottom line. And, you know, you hear 3G in the industry of what they've done to Kraft and Heinz. You know, here our, we take pride in trying to grow the sales and find venues, domestic, find venues and outlets internationally. So we've taken these partnerships internationally to, to you know, get exports, you know, where we've seen almost 20% now sales. And so, you know, we'll continue to do that on behalf of the farmer. Andy, I'll close by just thanking you, thanking Anya, thanking your board for the open lines of communication uh, that we've developed over the last several years. And it's one of those things I always enjoy is coming out in June or whenever to address your board. So thank you. Thank you for this opportunity and look forward to continuing our work together. Well, thank you so much. And I hope we'll be in touch soon. Well, thanks for that great interview, Annie, with the folks over at DMI. And now we're going to have a Q&A with Anya about some recent OSHA visits. Thanks so much, Darby. We are back with Anya Radabaugh, our Western United Dairy CEO today. Welcome back, Anya. Thank you. We are back for a little issue that popped up over the weekend. We've been talking on the episode earlier about everyone's 4th of July, and a couple of folks um, in our industry had a little bit of a disruption 4th of July morning. Um, we started getting some calls Saturday about OSHA staff being out in the field inspecting dairies. Can you share a little bit about what that was all about? Yeah. 
OSHA was out uh, in force over the weekend uh, and, and speaking with them, they have uh, their own version of the story, but we started to receive um, dozens of producer calls, particularly in Merced County, uh, that was essentially Merced County was being targeted because of the high spike in coronavirus testing cases there. And uh, the assertion or allegation, I believe, by the UFW that farmers are not protecting their workers. And so OSHA was ordered to do some spot checks, which are very different than enforcement visits. Uh, these spot checks are called compliance assistance checks, where they were out looking for um, compliance with Governor Newsom's executive order uh, regarding masks, social distancing, uh, hand washing facilities, things like that. Okay, so it, it's not a compliance inspection. There's typically not going to be a fine associated with these visits. They're just making sure folks are up to date on all of their postings and preparation for their employees in the event that COVID-19 should end up coming to their farm. Correct. Kind of what should dairymen do? We've been sending out a lot of, I know I personally have been sending out a lot of um, information to producers and different posters and things that they should have up, but can you share a little bit more about what they should do to be prepared for an OSHA spot check? So senior, senior leadership at OSHA informed me that there's three uh, main areas that they are looking for compliance in, but there is a whole list that is available on Western United Dairy's website and our Facebook page that uh, helps producers essentially check the boxes on that list. But the three major areas that OSHA is looking for are hand washing stations, which includes soap, uh, toilet sanitization, regular, uh, some kind of regular system of sanitizing the toilet area, and lastly, mask compliance. And of those three areas, uh, OSHA did find that almost all dairies they visited were not in conformance with the mask recommendations of any essential worker out and about in a public space or a space that's not social distance needs to be wearing a mask. Uh, this is an area of, of gray because most of our farms, particularly in the milking barn, a lot of them are already social distanced. Um, but this was an issue that OSHA was going to raise with its superiors to make sure that our social distancing is uh, essentially enough. Um, but that's the only area that they observe dairy to be a little bit lax in. Okay, okay. I think um, talking with my members this week about various issues, that sort of seems to be a common thread throughout the whole industry. So really hitting home the point on masks um, today, whether folks are on the mask train or not, it is an important part of compliance with OSHA's regulations. So you need to get those. Masks and you can, available. you can only do so much as an employer. Um, I think that providing the masks is the first step and Absolutely. making sure that you as a dairy farmer or protecting yourself that you are at least attempting to follow the rules, but we cannot make these guys wear masks, uh, particularly off the property. Um, we can certainly have them do so on their shift, but um, there is a real challenge that we have in um, suggesting these masks be worn after hours. And so that's uh, going to continue to be a problem, I think in all industries. Definitely, definitely. And we do have some postings available and some literature in both English and Spanish. And um, we may be able to get that translated to Portuguese as well if folks are concerned about how to instruct their employees regarding masks or hand washing or anything else regarding COVID-19. So we do um, 
have the ability to send that out via email or to print it out and send it to our folks via snail mail if they need that extra support. I think that's, those are really good ideas. It's a really good idea right now to check Western's website uh, unless you wanna go directly to Cal OSHA or CDC once a week. Um, once a week is probably a good recommendation to make sure that you're following the latest uh, because things are changing. And so there initially when this started happening, we had guidance dating back from May um, and Cal OSHA only released a set of an agricultural employee guidance uh, on the 2nd of July. So basically the day before they started yeah. coming out. And so that became a problem really quickly because we not, um, the, the information, we can't get it out fast enough to our, our dairies. And so checking the website is a really good, probably pastime. I know a lot of people don't check websites as frequently perhaps as we used to, but in this time, uh, it is one of the ways that we are Basically, as soon as I get information from the state, I put it up on the website. So it's, it's a fast way to get information quickly. For sure. And we'll continue emailing and sharing, you know, portal links and stuff on our, our social media pages, but I just can't hit home hard enough. Like the employer's responsibility at this point, and, and I know it may seem unfair to a lot of guys, I've had that feedback this week, but to just make sure your employees are educated and that if they suspect that they've been either exposed or that they're ill, that they take the appropriate steps right away and, and quarantine and seek medical care if needed, because um, you know it, the burden really falls on the employers in, in a lot of these cases. Well, and that brings up a really good a really good topic about um, about medical records, and we yeah. are having an attorney look at that in the future. But right now, uh, it is a common, uh, I think most attorneys involved in this, in this issue are saying that you can ask for the employee to uh, visit a medical facility, but that you cannot ask for the results of that test, um, which is a challenge because we, for every one employee that we need to quarantine or needs to go into quarantine, it probably affects five or 10 more. Um, and so this is going to be an ongoing challenge as we try to navigate this. We are seeking guidance both legally from Sacramento and from uh, our local labor attorney. Definitely. And, and I spoke with Tony briefly yesterday, Anya, and it sounds like employers probably aren't entitled to see actual test results, but they are entitled to ask for a letter from an employee's physician stating that they either need to self-quarantine or that they've been diagnosed. Because really this does put, you know, the entire dairy um, and all the employees at risk if, if a person is unknowingly or knowingly coming to work with a potential illness. So yeah, just have to be a little more careful these days. Hopefully, <laughs> I mean, I, I know a lot of folks aren't on the mask train. I'm, I, you know, certain things I'm on the fence myself about, but I do think really asking those employees to make sure they're wearing masks and using those hand washing stations as often as possible is, is the biggest, most important step we can take in prevention right now. And we can't control, as you said, everything they do, but Lots to think yeah. about. <laughs> in, and in closing, I, uh, just a few kind of factual points. Uh, an employer will never get a mandatory enforcement uh, visit on a holiday or a weekend. Uh, Cal OSHA assures me that they don't do that. I know a lot of guys felt like they'd been kind of bamboozled, trapped. Um, I don't think it was the best timing because if it was an exercise in learning, 
which is what I would convey to OSHA. It sounds like if you're trying to assist them with compliance, why would you do it on a day that the jurymen almost are certainly not available to listen to your feedback? Um, so that was a criticism I had, but uh, they did insist that moving forward, there's never going to be enforcement visits um, on a holiday or weekend. So I said, okay. well, that doesn't exactly help our guys take you guys any seriously, <laughs> any more seriously. Um, but then second to that, one of the issues that, that this experience has brought up and um, Cal OSHA in general also needs to follow its own state guidance. And we have heard differing reports from dairymen uh, that some of the inspectors may or may not have been wearing masks, that some of them may or may not have visited multiple times in the same dairy, which has led to an interagency dispute between CDFA biosecurity handling um, on dairies and Cal OSHA probably could put some money on who will win this conversation <laughs> but it has led to some more discussions about congruity uh, you know in in guidance and that is something that I think we as an industry still need to, to really strengthen but further um, as, as we have been engaged in a variety of calls between uh, you know Cal Ocean Sacramento and CDFA in Sacramento um, one of the things that I've been emphasizing to them is that we have some really unique cultural elements of the folks that we employ and they need to do a much better job um, in, in basically adhering to those cultural practices and showing up with a bunch of orders uh, a bunch of state state sanctioned guidance not translated into Spanish is a real problem yeah. We've been able to translate that at Western, um, but the state, um, there's already a lot of history of mistrust of the government, and um, because our guys have a unique set of cultural experiences, uh, the state really needs to find liaisons to do a better job to communicate the risks of this virus to that cultural piece of, of our employees. Definitely. I agree with that. And we're seeing that that's, you know, that's been a really big challenge on, on these farms. So, well, thanks so much, Anya, for the update on the OSHA stuff. And um, we will probably be in touch with you more as the weeks go on and this, this spike continues. We're trying to limit our COVID coverage a little bit, but we want to make sure we're bringing our, our listeners the most accurate up-to-date information. So we'll check in with you in the next couple of weeks. Thank you. Thanks, Anya. Well, thank you, Anya, for answering some questions we have regarding OSHA visits. And now I'm going to let Melissa lead it into our closer. Okay, thanks, Derby. We are joined today by Devin Gilletti, our Western United Dairies Board President. Thanks so much, Devin, for taking time to speak with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Of course. Well, Devin, we just had you on a couple weeks ago and we were hoping to give you a little bit of a break, but we asked you to join us today because a really important topic came up this week and we wanted the executive committee members um, given a chance to address it. So for a little background, um, our week started out pretty smooth and on Tuesday we were made aware of an email that was pretty accusatory and inflammatory that's been circulating around the industry it was sent out from an industry group so Devin can you give us a little background on that yeah a letter was circulating that um Western United and United Dairy Families had joined forces I guess you would say and were both um fighting the cause to preserve quota and that's the furthest from the truth that it could be that's that's absolutely not true at all and um we received a lot of uh, angry uh 
correspondence from from our members. Um, so we had to do something to set the record straight. Uh, West United's always been neutral. I mean, we took a neutral stance on this issue because we represent members with quota and without quota. So what we do, we, we do support the process of dairymen self-determination uh, voting. Uh, if they want to make changes to the quota uh, system, we want that to be a fair election and a fair process under the same rules that we, most dairymen in California understood were the rules when we voted in the federal order. Um, when the federal order uh, discussions were coming around, it was always understood that uh, any changes of quota would operate under the same existing rules in the state order. Um, so that's, that's, what we, that's what we support. We support the same rules that uh, we voted in with the federal order. Um, anything other than that is completely untrue. Right, and I think it's really important to highlight, um, Devin, it sounds like maybe the confusion started because we did file um, something with the courts, as Anya mentioned on last week's episode, called an amicus curiae, or a friend of the court brief, which basically just allows us to be a part of the proceeding, make sure that we give a pertinent and correct information to the courts, but also that we can get in access to information about what's happening in the court case and give that back to our members in the most accurate way. Yeah, we definitely wanted to be a part of the process and be in the room. And um, the the briefs that we submitted were basically a historical uh, record of how quota how quota became into the existence, all the changes along the way, and all the procedures that uh, that were implemented and that were a part of the federal order um, as we understood it. So. Uh, it definitely wasn't to support or uh, not support the quota system. It was completely a historical record of of what the quota system is. Um, this judge is a, a judge without any understanding of the quota system. We thought the historical record was important. Absolutely. Um, so what you guys did, the seven members of the executive committee did write a response in our update this week, and we'll link to that in our show bio this week, but also just for all of our members that get the update, make sure you check your email, and for some reason it didn't come through yesterday, check your spam folder, and you can read the, you know, full response. We, it's titled Setting the Record Straight. It's on the very first page, um, so thank you for doing that. Is there anything else um, members should do if they have questions? I, I really want to hit home the point that they, they should reach out to us and ask. And I, I would think you're in agreement with that. Yeah, there's a lot of um, fake news, I guess you would say, out there. And a lot of um, propaganda, I guess I would call it. Uh, Half-truths. Um, and I, I'm, I'm kind of uh, upset that this whole process has gone down to this level. Um, I was hoping that we can keep it professional. And uh, so basically if members have questions or if they're hearing things on, uh, out there in the industry, reach out to Anya, reach out to myself, reach out to a board member, reach out to field staff and get it straight from, from our side. Um, I, th I feel like that's the best source of information is, is right to, go right to the source. There's too much uh, coffee shop talk uh, going around right now. Absolutely. And Devin, before we let you go, do you have anything else you'd like members to know or, or just want to say in light of all of this? Um, one way or another, this quota issue is going to be resolved. And I think when this is all over, we're going to remember 
um, you know, how, how, how people acted and, and the things that happened. And that's unfortunate because there's a lot of important issues, issues that are bigger than quota uh, with all the state regulations. And we're going to be, we're going to have to be united as an industry. And I feel like there's a lot of hurt feelings out there, a lot of uh, personal attacks. And uh, I think that's going to make it harder for us to unite when the time comes um, to face issues bigger than quota. So I think we all need to just remember that this is one important issue of many important issues. So let's, let's try to rise above the fray and let's all be professional in, in how we proceed. Awesome. Thank you so much, Devin. We really appreciate you taking the time on a Friday afternoon to talk with us and, and set the record straight once again. Yeah, it's a very important issue. So it's, it's worth the time. Definitely. Well, and as we wrap up with this episode, we also want to give not only a huge thank you to Devin for being on and setting the record straight, but a thank you to Annie, Stan Irwine, and Paul Zeminski from DMI. Thank you again for joining us for this week's episode. And remember, you can reach out to us with questions, comments, or content requests. Our email for the podcast is wud.pod at gmail.com. You can reach out to myself, Darby, D-A-R-B-Y, at wudarries.com. And Melissa, where can our listeners reach you? My email address is m-l-e-m-a at wudarries.com. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite platform. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend, everybody. While West United Dairies respects the varied views of our podcast guests, please know that views expressed on Seen and Heard may not necessarily reflect the positions of the West United Dairies Board of Directors. Thank you to Western United Dairies' generous 2020 business sponsors, Gar Bennett, California Dairy Magazine, Farm Credit Alliance, FNR Ag Services, Moss Energy Works, Bennett Environmental, PG&E, and Yosemite Farm Credit. We appreciate our sponsors and thank them for their continued support. If you'd like more information on how to sponsor Western United Dairies or this podcast, please send us an email at info at wudairies.com. That's info at wudairies.com. D-A-I-R-I-E-S dot com.